have kind of last week, uh, in, in some ways, concluded this uh, thing called Mountains and Valleys. It's a, a series that we're going through. And we decided to extend it one more week because essentially what Mountains and Valleys talks about is different seasons of life. The ebbs and flows, the ups and downs, the in-betweens that we all experience in life. And for many of us, um, in fact, for many of you, you are about to enter into a new season of life. And whether that's a new season just of, of um, what, what perhaps you're in the school systems that are and you're going towards summer and you've got an internship coming up or you're going away to some really cool place and you're going abroad to Spain or to Europe and you're going to come back and you're so cultured and cool, cool, cool. Um, or, you know, for some of you, you're graduating. In fact, um, if you are graduating undergrad, um, master's, perhaps your PhD, or maybe, you know, you're graduating from high school. Um, hey, maybe you're graduating from elementary school or middle school and into high school. But if you're graduating in any shape or form in the next, like, month or so, um, would you raise your hand so we can celebrate you for a second? Fantastic. <laughs> It's kind of funny, especially when you graduate college, because, you know, there's all the different people and the way that they experience graduation. And some folks, it's like, oh, my gosh, this is our last time, you know, in Spanish class. And it's just so emotional. And, you know, teach, I'm never, I'm never going to hear anybody say, como se llama again, you know. <laughs> I, had, <laughs> I walked out of my last college class giving the entire education system, you know, a peace sign, um, half of a peace sign. I was just telling, man, you guys, <laughs> number one, you're number one. Anyway, um, like I said, some of you are like, legitimately, I'm not going back to that church. So, um, the thing that we wanted to talk, I wanted to talk about as it relates to seasons of life and as it relates to change and transition, and this, frankly, um, is true regardless of what season or what change or what transition you're going into, uh, whether that is from um, one job to the next job, whether that's from one city to the next city, one school to the next school, one major to the next major, um, whatever life has for us, um, when transition hits, transition's naturally stressful. Transition naturally implies um, change, and change is always difficult. And so what we wanted to do, or what I like to do, is as we transition, or many of you transition into what is maybe the next stage of life, or perhaps just what is the next season um, of summertime, or whatever it is, we'd like to do a sermon called, if you didn't hear anything else. Um, in the last, uh, last Sunday of the fall or the spring semester, we get everybody together in this and talk about if you didn't hear anything else, as you go towards the next season of your life, this is what we want you to know. Now, if you have been here for any amount of time, you know that most of my sermons at some point say, and if you don't hear anything else, this is the thing, or this is the point that everything culminates towards. I don't think I'm a good enough pastor. Um, for those of you who are raised kind of in the Baptist background, there's three points and they're alliterated, you know, because two didn't, you get, you didn't get your money worth and four, you know, it's just too many to remember. Um, and so three is kind of like the gold standard. I'm not that good. So I just kind of have one thing. And so we thought, what would we talk about? As a recap for all the things that we have talked about, if you didn't hear anything else in your entire time at school here, in your entire time as you were working here, as your, as your entire time, as you transition to this next season of life, if you are in transition, or whenever you transition, what would we say to say if you didn't hear anything else, we don't want you to miss this? And going back and looking through the New Testament, if you're familiar with the Bible, New Testament is all Jesus and then going forward. First four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, are the accounts of Jesus' life. After that gets to the book of Acts, 
which is essentially the story, the chronological order of what happened to the early church. And then it gets to the letters. The letters, there's this guy, it's a figure named Paul, and Paul would write to a bunch of Christians. And often Paul was writing to Christians as they would go through some stuff, as they would go through issues, as they would integrate their faith into their culture, what they would run into. And so we thought, what does Paul most often see as the problem as he has left a place, as they have transitioned leadership, as they have transitioned in a new you know, age and era of life? What is the thing that Paul is most often addressing as it relates to the churches and the people of God? Because we think that the context and the culture changes, but the human nature is relatively similar. And so here's the thing that we don't want you to miss. Here's the thing that we're going to spend the rest of this this morning talking about that we think is so extraordinarily important. Over and over, Paul in the New Testament addresses one problem repeatedly. Over and over, Paul, more than any other problem that he faces, in fact, this is kind of the cornerstone problem that this problem clarifies every other problem. He sees a tendency, and as you read the New Testament for yourself, you will see a tendency, and here's the tendency, to base our relationship with God, our approval by God through the lens of how well we behave and how good we act, perhaps how often we attend, for some of us, how much we sing, but it's through the lens basically of behavior. And Paul would go over and over and clarify this idea that it's not based on your behavior. It's not based on your behavior. It's not based on behavior. It's based on faith in Jesus. It's based on faith in Jesus. And yes, that might change your behavior, but behaviorism is not the method or the mode through which God has brought salvation to planet earth. And in that, I think as we face transition is why so many people, let me tell you just my experience as a pastor working in youth ministry for a long time, and then working uh, now with a, a church that's you know, relatively heavy towards college. And as people transition, everybody talks about how folks um, walk away from their faith as they leave high school going to college. There is just as much of a loss or a de-emphasis in faith as folks leave college and go out to the real world. And here's what I have kind of deduced it back to. At some point, your belief in God became about your behavior to God. And as your behavior changed... You started to question belief. When our relationship with God is based on our behavior and our behavior changes, it makes it very difficult to ever come back to him because we feel like we have so deeply disappointed God. So Paul in the book of Romans addresses this. We're going to read chapter 3. I'm starting at verse 19 as Paul addresses uh, the church of Rome. The church of Rome had two different people. One group of people were the people who had Jewish tradition, Jewish heritage. These were the people who had the lineage of God. Okay, so modern context. These are the people who, you know, their, you know, their daddy was a pastor. Their great-granddaddy was a pastor. Their grandma was a deacon. You know, their great-great-grandma. I mean, they were bishops. And, you know, there were all kinds of stuff that were involved. And they just had this extraordinary lineage of God. And they thought because they were materially blessed and they had the lineage of God that they were in God's good graces. In other words, because they behaved so well and they had the lineage which would lead to, they were okay in God's eyes. On the other side of it, you had the Gentiles, who everybody knew was a sinner. 
everybody understood. This is like the person, and, and you know this, you have this person that you, um, you know, they're in your office and like you might be not as good of a person as, you know, you know, Cheryl by the water cooler, but there's Frank, you know, and it's like, well, Frank's a, a mess, you know? So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm probably good with God because I'm not Frank or you have a roommate, you know, and it's like, man, I have, you know, all my roommates, you know, and then I have that one roommate. It's like, dude, get your life together, you know? And if you don't have that roommate, you are that roommate. And <laughs> so, you know, but here, here, but here, here's the point. It was not, it was not to, it was not to condemn. It was to say, hey, hey, hey. So everybody has sin. There is not this sense of individual condemnation because of, there's this relative sense of righteousness for me compared to you and you compared to me that we all have sin. So this is how he says it in chapter three, verse 19, as he's been leading the, for the first two and a half chapters, the first yeah, two and a half chapters to get to this point to say, okay, you know, uh, Gentiles don't feel like you're disqualified in, don't, in, in Romans, don't feel like you're not in need of qualification. So this is how he says it. Chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now pause. The law was how they would, um, as an umbrella statement, say all of the morality as it related to the Old Testament. All of the rituals, all of the you shoulds and the you shouldn'ts and you oughts and you ought nots. These were all kind of summarizing this idea of the law. And he says, so the law speaks to everyone who is under the law, which is relatively intuitive. So that every mouth may be stopped in the whole world held accountable to God. In other words, and I don't care if you came from the lineage of God or you came from the opposite of the lineage of God, that there is universally this understanding that no matter who I am, where I've come from, and what I've done, positively or negatively, we are all accountable to God and we are all held captive by the law. Which, if we're being honest, for some of us, that's a problem with religion. Is that the point of religion seems like it's behavior modification. The point of religion seems like, yeah, okay, I know I'm a bad person. I understand that. I get that. I know the mistakes. I've done it. But doesn't it just seem like there is this sense that in religion there is this just completely outrageous idea of perfection? This unattainable thought that you have to be perfect for God and before God, which is just really defeating. And so Paul clarifies that in his next statement that, yeah, we're all accountable to God, but let me tell you why this was put in place. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. In other words, none of us at the end of the day are going to stand before God and be in God's good graces because of our good behavior. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, here was the point of the law the entire time. The, the, the point of all of this morality, the point of all of this thought, the point of all of this, you know, law after law after law after law after law, rule after rule after rule after rule after rule, was to say, if you want to earn your way into God's good graces, here is the level that you have to behave and you have to be perfect at it for your entire life. Thus, we are all, all, all not justified, guilty, in light of that. But that wasn't the point, just to make us guilty. It was to bring us to the awareness that we're sinful. It was to bring us to the awareness that maybe I can't earn my way into God's good graces. 
The point of the law was never to condemn us and leave us condemned. The point of the law was to bring us to the awareness that we are condemned, but God has provided another way. Without realizing the depravity of our individual sinfulness, we will never fully appreciate what happens next, as he explains. That's what he says. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. In other words, righteousness. Righteousness means, in this context means a right standing. He says, but now you can have a right standing with God apart from the law, apart from moralism, apart from behaviorism, apart from what you do and what you don't do, how you act and how you don't act. It's one of the things I love to hear about people's stories is how they talk about their stories and they, you know, they did this and they did that and they did this and they did that and they sometimes just felt so condemned by it all. And then they realized maybe there's a way besides moralism. In fact, maybe moralism was never the point. Apart from the law, in the, well, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, not that that stuff was irrelevant. All the, everything was pointing. Everything was pushing. Everything was saying, there is another way. There is a different way. There is something that you're missing. That there, all the law, all the prophets, all the Old Testament were not purposeless. They were, had a very, very strategic point. They were pointing towards this, what he says next in verse 22. That the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He says, now, there's this way. There's this way that you can now be made right with God, not according to your behavior, not according to what you do, not according to what you don't do, not according to how much you attend, how much you don't attend, not even according to the fact that whether or not you got baptized, all of that, come on. All of that is simply works of the law. That's simply behaviorism. But there is a new way. And it's through faith in Jesus. Now, he, he, he explains a little bit more of the mechanics behind that in this very next statement. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, let me explain that statement because that is very, very loaded. The understanding is this. With any ruler, with any law, if you get caught, if you break it, then there has to be some type of a restitution that's made for it. If you're, you know, decided and you're on your way here and you're running late to church and, you know, you decided, man, I'm just going to hit, you know, 100 miles an hour going down Thomasville or Tennessee Street, you know, and, which some of you do, unfortunately, but, you know, you're, you're a sinner. Um, <laughs> But you're driving, the cop pulls you over, you know, and then you get a ticket, or maybe you get taken to jail, you know, if you're going that fast, but you know, you, but you have to pay something, you have to take a course online, there's, there's some type of a restitution that happens when you get caught breaking the law. The problem is we all break laws every single day, not just, you know, man's laws, God's laws, things that we ought to do, some things that we ought not do. Even if we didn't believe in God, we have our own simple, simple kind of moral compass of what we ought to do and ought not do, and we violate our own moral compass inside of us, and the problem is God knows everything. And so God saw that, and it's not that for me compared to you and you compared to me, we can make ourselves feel good about ourselves, but compared to God's holiness, I mean, just blameless, pure, righteous, 
holiness of God in which there is no sin and can be no sin. Me, in my utter sinfulness and depravity, not just talking about like, oh, us as a church. No, like, been in his depravity and sinfulness. I am alienated from God and there is no amount of restitution. There is no amount of giving. There is no amount of behavior that I can make myself acceptable to God. And God said that's never the point anyways. That there's now a righteousness, a right standing with God apart from how you behave and how you attend and how you act. That it's now. Through the realization that that payment could only be made by God. Because I'm incapable of paying that. And so God made that payment for me when he gave his son. He continues. And he says the redemption that is in Christ. That we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith. Now, here's the beautiful part about the gospel. It's not just that God has taken us. It's not just that God has taken us and forgiven us. Because that's, I mean, that, that, that's, that's extraordinary news. But for some of us, we end there. We think, okay, God has died for me. God has forgiven me of my sins. That it's not about my behavior. It's simply about my belief, my, my placing my trust, accepting the sacrifice that was made for me through Jesus. And now I am forgiven. And here's the beautiful thing. It doesn't stop there. God takes us because forgiveness implies neutrality. Forgiveness implies, okay, I'm just, you know, neutral. I'm just, you know, I'm just not sinful. No, no, no. He takes our sinfulness, he forgives it, and he clothes us in righteousness. Which means that when God sees me, God sees Jesus' righteousness completely covering me. That's crazy that the God of the universe would see me, send his son to die for me, and not just bring me into neutral, he would take me and compel me forward into righteousness. Not because I've done anything, but simply because he's that good of a God. And none of this happened, by the way, as some far-off place in some far-off land. He came down and recorded history. He performed crazy miracles, said he was the son of God, claimed he had authority to forgive sins, and then provided miracles and did miracles in order to substantiate that. Then he did what no one thought he would do. He died because no one thinks God is going to die. That doesn't even make sense. They thought maybe they had got it wrong. Easter morning came around. Which they didn't call it Easter morning, they probably called it a terrible morning. Because they show up at the grave and the cave and it's rolled away. And we talked about this on Easter. Nobody said, you know, he is risen. And everybody else said, yeah, they didn't say that. <laughs> they said, where'd he go? I'm telling you, you should read it for yourself. Where'd he go? We don't know. You know? In fact, there's one time where Mary was talking to Jesus and, and, and she was talking to, she didn't know she was talking to Jesus. And she says, you know, where did he go? And he says, you know, he says, she says, you're a gardener. If you'll tell me where he went. And then he just says back to her, Mary. And she realizes at one point she realized she runs back to tell the, the, the apostles, which is kind of a funny story because the apostles are supposed to be like the gods. Well, they're, they're supposed to be so smart. So, you know, spiritual, all this kind of stuff. And he, she runs back and tells them. And, and they said it was as if she was set 
saying, you know, fairy tales. Because no one believed God was going to die. And the world changed when they saw the resurrected Jesus. Documented over and over and over, both in biblical and extra-biblical texts. All because God saw this. And he saw and he knew that we were incomparable, or incapable of gaining a right relationship with him. And so he died for us. And that not only brings us into righteousness in his eyes. But let me tell you, here's a cool thing. Here's a cool thing. It compels us to righteousness in how we live. Because love will take you farther than the law could ever Love will take you so much farther than the law and the requirements of the law would ever. Because sometimes we get into this and it's like, well, so does, does how we live just not matter? No, it absolutely matters. But we live as a response to God's love for us, not as a requirement for God to love us. Tell why it's so important. Because wherever God has next for you, wherever he has you next, whether it's, you know, you're just going to wake up tomorrow and you're going to be in the same place, you're going to go to the same job, you're going to sit at the same desk, you're going to go home to the same, you know, kids and family and dog and, you know, all that stuff is just going to continue on as normal. Let me tell you, at some point in life, or if you're in a different city, in a different state, in a different job, perhaps a different country, doing something totally different, at some point, we will all come to the point where we feel like we have let God down because we haven't done what we feel like God has asked us to. It is the inevitability of our sinful nature. It will draw us away from God. And so long as we think our acceptableness to God is because of our own good behavior, it will make it nearly impossible to come back to him. But if we realize our acceptableness to God was never because of our good behavior, that our good behavior was simply a response that we have been accepted by God, it makes it so much easier to say, God, I am so sorry. I know it was never because of me in the first place, but I am so sorry, and I want to realign myself and live in response again. Let me explain it this way, and then we'll end. Quick story. Um, So I'll tell you about uh, how my wife and I um, got married I conned her. It's really how it happened. Um, got got set up. We were on a blind date, which you know is kind of like the you know nerdy way to get set up back in the day. Um, it's like eHarmony before it existed. But if you're eHarmony, hey, praise God for you. God works. You know, all things, all people. Uh, anyway, so so you you've experienced this perhaps in a relationship too, where you know you start dating, you go on the, on, on the first date for us as a blind date, so everything's brand new, you know, just getting to know each other for the first time, and, and she was, you know, she, she had all like, you know, she was beautiful, and she was, you know, a Christian, and she was all those things, but man, she was just so smart, like she, she was so much, she would talk about books, and I'm like, how did you pronounce that again, you know, and, and she, you know, we would, I'm telling you, to this day, like if we read a page of a, of a book at the same time, it's just degrading how much quicker she gets through it than I do. Um, anyway, so go on the first date and kind of like her, you know, call her and, you know, go on a second date and there's somewhere like the third or fourth date and, you know, you're you're about to make it official and I kind of had a plan um, where I was, we were going to go. After three or four dates, you know, you've been to a meal the entire time. You can't go to a meal, you know, in perpetuity. So you decide, okay, well, let's do something different. So I'm like, okay, we're going to, we're going to go to the driving range. You know, get on my level right now. Um, My wrist turned over a little too quickly on that one, by the way. So let me just finish that swing well. So... Some of you were like, oh, I saw that. You, you, anyway, duck hook. I digress. Um, 
went to the driving range and, well, we were, our plan was to go, doc, to go to the driving range and go to dinner and then I was going to drop her off because I had to speak at this thing called Campus Crusade that night time. So shout out to crew people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't see that one coming. Anyway. So classic me, I was late, and I don't want to tell you how late because then you'll judge her for still being with me because of how late I was to our third or fourth date. And I go and I pick her up, and so we go to the golf course, we go to the driving range, um, you know, hit some golf balls, and she's like, oh my gosh, you hit the ball so well. Um, (laughs) She didn't say that. Um, How long have you been playing this game? You know, so we go on our our date, and we're running late, and it was... um, it was like, all right, we've only got two choices. I can either go drop you off at the house, but I've got to be at the same. I've got to speak. And, um, you know, I'm not trying to be that guy that's like, hey, come hear me speak, you know. And, but, you know, you're welcome to if you want to, but we don't, really don't have a lot of time, and we don't have a lot of time for you. We can kind of pick something up. And she goes, that's, this, is how, this is how you know that you are dating the person for you, or at least for me. It was, well, that's okay. You know, could we, let's just run by um, Wendy's and get some, like, 99-cent junior bacon cheeseburger. I'm like, <laughs> God, you understand me, you know. 99 cents, hello, you know? <laughs> anyway, so I go there, and we can speak and, and do the whole thing, and we get done, and she's like, you know, that was not the voice of man. It was the voice of God. And I'm like, I know, I know, <laughs> no. She didn't say that. She was like, okay, eh, it's going to give you some pointers. Um, afterwards, we go to uh, Steak and Shake, and we do the um, DTR, if you're not familiar with that term, define the relationship. It's very important. Um, and from that point forward, really kind of before that point, from that point going forward, you know, it's, it was this idea that, that from time to time, you know, there are things that, and everybody's like this, where um, if you're pursuing someone that you are, are increasingly becoming um, in, more and more in love with, and, and the relationship is growing, and, and as it grows, you start to do some things that you wouldn't normally do. You start to, you know, buy flowers when you normally wouldn't think of flowers. You start to, you know, you know take showers when you normally wouldn't take showers, you know, just all kinds of stuff that's a little bit uncharacteristic. But here's the thing. It was never like, okay, if you're going to be in a relationship with me, like I need flowers this often, here's the requirements. And I need to go to dinner this often. And and come on, just take a shower, bud. You know, this, this wasn't the requirement, but the thing was, is in everybody's experiences, or, or many of us have experienced this, that as you fall in love with the person who is at the center of your adoration, you start to do things for them that you wouldn't normally do in and of yourself because of the fact that you love them, not because they require you to. And that's exactly the picture of God in the gospel, that he so loved us He gave his son to die for us, not just forgiving us, but compelling us to righteousness, making us righteous. And in that, in the love that in my mountain of sin, in the depths of my depravity, no matter how darn, how how dark and how deep the hole of my sinfulness has gotten, it has not gotten deeper than the love and the light of God. And God sees me and that has forgiven me in totality and in perpetuity of every and anything ever. That type of love, when you experience it, especially experience it on a daily basis, transforms you and you want to become more like God because you realize how deep and how much God loves you. Let me tell you, yesterday, I cleaned our sink and our toilet without being asked. <laughs> Be blessed. Let's pray. You know, no. <laughs> my wife shoots off a little cannon and stuff good that's not that's not me at all that was never me 
but it's become more of me. And not because she made me, because that's what you do when you love people. The reason we behave isn't because God makes us. It's because that's what you do when you realize how deeply you have been loved and you just respond back in that. And I don't know where life has you next. I don't know where what, what God has for you next. Maybe the next is just the same thing as it's always been. But here's what I do know. There is such a tendency to remove the love from it and add the requirement of it. And so long as we do that, we will have bought into a false gospel that makes it nearly impossible when the inevitable happens, when we wake up and realize that we lived, Romans 3, 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there's this moment of awareness of the level of our depravity. And we all of a sudden become so acutely aware of it. And we feel this extraordinary sense of condemnation from it that God says, no, you have got to understand the point was never condemnation. The point was, if you never realized that you were, in fact, a sinner in need of a Savior, my love would not be that extraordinary because we will never grasp how big of a deal that is because I will never understand how truly sinful I am and how extraordinarily holy his holiness is. But it's the level of our awareness of our sinfulness and his holiness that drives meaning in the gospel that responds in a love of a life that's lived for him. I hope and I pray wherever life has you, wherever life has you today, wherever life has you tomorrow, wherever life has you next, if there is something perhaps that's different for you, I pray that if you don't hear anything else, you hear that you have a God who so loved you, he gave his son to die for you, not because you were to die for, but simply because he loved you, and our lives are lived in response to that. And at some point in your life, when you wake up perhaps, and you took a new job, and you were in a new city, and it's not that you walked away from your faith, but you kind of just, over time, and over friend groups, and over decisions, de-emphasized your faith, and it's just kind of really on the periphery, and you feel this little thing inside of you that feels this kind of sense of like condemnation, and I don't know if I could get back to where I I was because where I was was just so strong. I hope you know it was never about you in the first place. It was always, 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 always about Jesus and what he did. And it was about the fact that the time that perhaps you were just living with more acute awareness of it, so you lived more in love than in morality. Don't you dare think that it's about you. Because it never was, and it never will be. And there's so much freedom in that. That you are deeply loved by the God of the universe, of the world. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, I pray for whatever places and whatever spaces every person in here is going to walk into tomorrow or next month or next year. I pray that you can make us just so extraordinarily aware that you, our Heavenly Father, loved us. You, the Holy God, who sustains all things through the power of your mighty word, became a person and died The fullness of you, God, dwelt in you, the person Jesus, and died on the cross for sinners like us who have so fallen short 
we don't even realize how much. I pray that you would compel us to a loving relationship with you. Not because you require obedience, but simply because your love overwhelms us and responds in a life lived for you. God, I pray that if ever there's a point where anyone in this room has started to wander, transition, new place, new space, new people, their faith just kind of became less and less and less of primary and more and more and more on the periphery, you will help them to know. I pray that you will help every single person to not have to go through that. But if and when they do, you will help them to know it was never about them in the first place. It was about you, a God who so loved us, you gave your son to die for us. And our righteousness is based on that. And our lives are lived in response to it. So God, I pray that you would keep that all in our minds as we go forward. That if we didn't hear anything else, there's a God who loves us, who gave a son to die for us. And that is the sole basis of our righteousness and justification. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.